0: This episode is dedicated to Matt D., K. Friggin' Money, Eric Samson, and Leandro Lopez for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw Project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a 5-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe and if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon, and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you.
1: Today, we have a very special Fight Study and Pride Never Die collaboration. I'm Sam. We also have Karian. Hello. And we have a very special guest today, MMA fighter, Alana McLaughlin. Welcome to the show, Alana.
2: Hi, and thank you.
1: So you recently had your first MMA fight against Celine Provost for Combate Global, becoming the second professional trans MMA fighter. How did this whole thing happen from not only this fight getting made, but getting signed with Combate?
2: Uh, You know, I'm still trying to figure that out 100% myself. Um, Basically, right before the pandemic hit, I went and uh, hung out with Fallon in Chicago and we had a little sparring session. And I guess it wasn't long after that, that she was approached by Combate um, and they were looking for a trans fighter. And since she's retired um, with some injuries, although she's, I think she's considering like she wants to get back in the ring, but um, I don't know if that's in the cards or not, but uh, she gave them my name um, and the rest is history, I guess.
1: And so by Fallon, you mean Fallon Fox? Yes. Yes. How did you get into MMA training?
2: Initially... um, Well, I mean, I've kind of been interested in MMA since like UFC one, basically, uh, because I am old. Um, But uh, as far as like specifically MMA training, it kind of dovetailed into what I was doing in the army. You know, we had the modern army combatives thing. um, And I was a big UFC fan at the time. So like I I would purchase all the pay-per-views. And um, yeah, I don't know. I was just some of it was like self-defense kind of stuff because, you know, I got bullied a lot growing up and then with the job that I had being in the army, um, it, it felt important at the time. So, so I guess that was kind of my, um, my entryway into actual MMA training. You know, my team had a golden gloves boxer and a West point wrestler and a Jeet Kune Do guy. So, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of the entry point for actual MMA, I guess.
1: Did you do any sports while you were in high school or middle school?
2: I was a runner. Um, I ran cross country and I ran track and field. And I basically was the distance team for uh, track. Like every event from the 800 up, I had to run every meet. So Like I always, I always felt like I never quite reached my full potential there because I was always tired from the last race. Like I'd, I'd finish the 800 and I'd have to jog to the starting line of the, of the two mile and run that and then immediately roll into the one mile and then sometimes do the four by eight. Like it was, yeah. Um, but I still like, I went to college on athletic scholarships for cross country. I was kind of a middle of the pack division two runner and that was
1: without really, without good coaching for the most part. Do you feel like that gave you a good baseline cardio to transition to MMA? Uh,
2: I would say, I would say so. Yeah. My cardio has always been pretty good. Um, I definitely noticed like a huge dip after HRT, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I would say running as my sort of background definitely gave me not just cardio, but like work ethic too, I think.
3: Mentioning the drop-off after HRT had me interested because I was already going to bring up. Um, I was interested in knowing what like your history with athletics has been post-HRT before this fight.
2: Okay, so before this fight, post-HRT, the only athletic stuff I've really done was still mostly running-related. Mm-hmm. Um, I've run a couple marathons and half marathons. And... Uh, <laughs> It's one of those things where sometimes I have trouble with motivation. Um, You know, I don't know if it's PTSD, depression, whatever, but I would do this thing where I'd be like, well, I don't like the way I feel right now. I don't like the way I look right now, so I'm going to get back into shape. And I would sign up for a race and be like, well, surely if I pay a 100 some odd dollars to enter a race, I'll actually put the effort into training, right? So what happens is I spend the entry fee on a marathon and then I train for like two or three weeks and then completely drop off. And then because I'm stubborn, even though I didn't train, I'll go and run the damn marathon anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And that, that, that's been a pattern. So, um, basically I've all the marathons I've done, I've gone in with the plan of trying to run sub four hour. And what happens is at the halfway point, I'm still on pace. And I come in at about two hours at my half marathon mark, and then somewhere around mile 18 in every single marathon, my quads cramp up on me because I haven't trained enough. And then, <laughs> and then my time <laughs> suffers. So, but uh, I, th- I think, um, you know, running is still my first love. And when I feel like I'm, I should no longer fight, I think I'm going to try to, you know, I'm, I'm going to get back into serious running. And I, r- I really want to do an ultra. Diaz brother style athletics. <laughs> I guess. <laughs>
1: So why do you think Combate was looking for a trans fighter when it's viewed so negatively in MMA?
0: Uh,
2: you know, I can't say for sure. There's the cynical part of me that just goes, well, you know, it's, it's something that'll draw a lot of eyes and get a lot of attention, and there's money to be made in those situations. But I do think there's more to that. I think... Um, Campbell, the president of Combate, I think he's got a vested interest. Um, I think he's got some personal connections to some trans folks. Um, so I, I think that's part of it. But, you know, I don't want to I don't want to speculate too much.
1: I guess my question then is, did they ever make you feel like you were some kind of novelty act?
2: You know, that's what I really appreciate about Combate is they've specifically like gone out of their way to try to make sure that was not the case. Um, You know, like uh, people were really like a a few people were really curious why they weren't promoting this fight more. Um, And part of it, I think, was maybe some fear that Governor Ron DeSantis would try to interfere and keep it from happening, um, which luckily didn't happen uh and the other part was they really did not want to turn it into like a sideshow um and and campbell was very explicit about this you know he said rather than um rather than combate doing a big media blitz about it and you know being sensationalist like oh trans fighter trans fighter um i mean and granted there was like a little bit of that in the pre-show stuff but it was pretty much unavoidable. Um, and I feel like they treated it pretty respectfully.
1: If they were trying to use this as a gimmick to get eyeballs, they really dropped the ball because <laughs> yeah, yeah. it really flew under their radar. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like I fully expect that that will be the case
2: for the second fight. Um, but for this first one, Campbell was very explicit that he didn't want it to be exploitative. He didn't want it to be a sideshow thing. Um, we just wanted to get this first fight done and see how things shook out. Uh, and that's why for media, instead of Kombate releasing a bunch of stuff, they decided to let outsports do it, The Guardian do it, you know, like regular media pick it up, you know.
1: Now that your first fight is out of the way, how do you feel about your first fight?
2: Uh, well, y'all y'all know how I am with <laughs> the, the self-critique, I guess. Um, i'm I'm trying not to be too self-critical, but it's hard. Uh, especially with like some of the comments that people are making, you know? And I mean, there was never any circumstance that, you know, there's no way this fight could have gone that people were not going to claim that I have an unfair advantage of some sort. Um, So I'm looking at most of the commentary now and they're basically like, oh, well, no real woman could have taken all those punches without going down. And I'm like, Celine took my punches and they were solid, you know, like she didn't go down either. Um, I mean, and, and yeah, like she was a lot more crisp of a striker than I was in that fight. Um, her, her technique is amazing. Like I'm honestly in awe of her and, um, her, uh, her reach advantage was really hard to overcome, but I don't know. I'm like I said, I'm trying not to be too self-critical, but my game plan definitely fell apart when, when she rang my bell there. You know, I, I got it, I got it back together in the second round, but whew, I mean, she, she hits like a truck,
1: <laughs> you know, did the nerves get to you at all?
2: <sighs> that, that's a good question. I'm honestly, I, I swear I'm not trying to be flippant here. I don't know. It's, it's really, it's really hard for me to tell because, um, you know, I felt, <sighs> Initially, when the fight was supposed to take place back in August, uh, nerves were definitely getting to me then, um, and I'm not sure if it was the actual fight or just all the backlash that I knew was coming with it. But nerves were definitely getting to me then. I actually came down with shingles, and I think that was stress related, honestly. Um, but yeah, that initially, like, yeah, I was I was definitely freaked out the first time, but then after. After the fight got postponed, coming into it this time, I felt really relaxed. I felt really chill. Um, honestly, I didn't. I didn't have. I didn't feel like I had too much stress coming into it this time until one of my teammates showed up in a maga hat, and then, you know, it was weight cut day, and all bets were off, and I, I got a little
3: emotional. Something I'm interested in is a. Uh, I'm really interested in hearing what parts of the camp and the fight and everything that you enjoyed the most because i am interested in hearing you know what you liked about fighting because i think so much of like mma and dealing with all of the commentary afterwards that's so stressful that uh it can be overlooked um what some of the more positive aspects were
2: so I really think when it comes down to it between training and the actual fight itself, like what I really enjoy about it, what really actually gives me joy is sort of reclaiming my body, you know, like reclaiming my space. Um, you know, by now, I'm sure everybody's aware that like I've, I've had a lot of trauma in my life and a lot of it has been around control of my body and control of my actions and myself, you know. Um, and it's, it's kind of the same way that getting a tattoo can be cathartic, um, you know, cutting your hair, any kind of action that sort of lets you take control, um, to me training in mixed martial arts, training in any martial art, um, and the actual, like getting into the cage and fighting, um, it's, it's an act of reclamation for me, you know? It just, it it just feels, it feels like I'm finally in a, in a place and in a position where the only thing I have to worry about is myself. You know, like when it comes down to it and you're in that fight, like granted, there's all the training that goes into it. There's the team backing you up, there's your corner and all that. But when it comes down to it, it's just you and your opponent in that cage. And it, it definitely like gives you an opportunity to really like just focus on what you're doing to the exclusion of everything else. You know,
3: I can definitely see how that would be almost like a sort of freedom that you don't get in a lot of places.
2: Yeah.
1: Has it hit you yet that this is a big deal?
2: Uh, you know, I, I, I know I keep saying this, but I really don't know. (laughs) Like, uh, I mean, you're, you're talking to a girl who like, I've never been impressed by celebrity or anything like that. You know, like my, my closest brush with celebrity was a few years ago when I ate ramen in, uh, LA and came out of the bathroom and like physically ran into Keanu Reeves, (laughs) you know, like, it it was i was like oh wow i i think that's keanu reeves and then it was confirmed later like when he exited the restaurant and people were mobbing him for autographs but like i don't know i've just never really been impressed with celebrity or anything so but i will say it's kind of surreal to see athletes that i watched on tv when i was in the army and like when i was younger having opinions on me you know like <laughs> uh, Michael Bisping and, and Jake Shields and Demian Maya and like all these, all these people weighing in. Um, and it's like, you know, while I respect them as fighters and I respect things that they did for the sport, they don't know shit about trans issues. They don't know anything about the actual processes that take place in the body with human, with a hormone replacement. Like, it's just people, people repeat a lot of the things that they've heard over the years without actually doing any kind of real like investigation of it, you know? So, so yeah, it's just, it's kind of surreal. Um, what's, what's that right wing British chud, Piers Morgan, he's, he's got opinions on me too. So like, just, just seeing like all these big names, like seeing people write articles on things I said on Twitter in the past week, <laughs> that that's been very surreal for
1: me. So having just had your first fight and going through your first training camp, what's the biggest difference between fighting in a televised MMA fight versus just hard sparring? Um, hmm.
2: Well, as far as the camp that I had at MMA Masters, most of the sparring that we did was basically like great big open mat like everybody was sparring at once so you're constantly looking over your shoulder making sure you're not bumping into somebody pretty chaotic um you know i didn't i didn't get too many rounds actually like alone in the cage um before the fight itself but i think that's just a question of like how many fighters we had there you know like how much you know facility and space was available You know, when you're in a gym with like multiple active UFC fighters and you're coming up on your debut fight, you're just, you're not going to be the top priority in the camp, you know? Um, So, but otherwise, the biggest difference is that even with hard sparring, um, people are still pulling their punches a bit, you know? And I think that was that was probably a pretty big shock to me stepping in there was just like those first few punches that Celine connected with, like there were bad intentions on them. You know, it was, you know, I I've been attacked in the streets before and, uh, I've been hit by men that are much bigger than Celine and she's hit me harder than just about anybody else. Like she, she throws hard. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, that that's the biggest thing is that like, even with hard sparring, there's not quite the bad intention on those punches that, that there is in the actual fight.
1: And like you mentioned, I think that's another aspect people don't think about is you're still kind of distracted when you're hard sparring because you have to be aware of your surroundings. It's not so tunnel vision. So like trying to prepare for that hyper focus is something that a lot of, especially like non big name fighters who can't create a camp around them, they might not have a lot of experience with that until they step into the cage where it's just all eyes on them. And it's just me focusing on this other person. And I'm not focusing on anything around me. I'm not gonna have to worry about anybody running into me. And so then it's like, wait, how much practice have I had doing that?
2: You want to talk about hyper focus, like after, after she connected those first few times, and I was kind of dazed, like, at, at one point she rocked me and I stumbled. And from that point on, the only thing I could focus on was like, stay on your feet, you know, like try to cover up, like stop getting hit. Um, You know, trying to pay attention to my corner. Um, Sometimes like you'll, you'll catch a phrase here and there, but like at, at some point you're just, all you can really hear is your own breath and hers. You know, you can hear the impact of the fists hitting you yours connecting with her like it's just it's a very visceral experience and it's it's at the same time like you're so focused on these small minutiae like the the stimulus that you're picking up from you know your eyes and ears and at the same time, it's almost like an out-of-body experience because there's like this small part of your brain that's trying to stay above it all and analyze it and and work a game plan while at the same time, the rest of you is just like panicking.
1: <laughs> so you've brought a lot of new fans into MMA with your fight. So for them, what does dazed mean?
2: Oh, man, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to explain. Um, it's hard to explain to someone that has not been knocked out or nearly knocked out what that sensation is like, you know, it's like you come in with a game plan, you come in with an idea of what you're going to do and you know, all the things that you're supposed to do, like, Oh yeah, I got to make sure that I'm slipping these punches. I got to maintain my distance. You know, I have to work my distance management, make sure that I'm not standing in the pocket getting tuned up. But like once you get hit a couple times, Um, especially when someone's hitting as hard as Celine was like, you're, it's, I mean, I was having trouble maintaining consciousness there for a minute. Like I seriously, like when she stumbled me with that one, literally the only thing I could think was like, get your feet under you. You cannot get knocked out in your first fight, you know, not in the first round, you got to stay on your feet. Um, and that kind of became my singular thought for a good 10 or 20 seconds there, I think. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It is really hard to, it's really hard to describe that sensation to someone that hasn't experienced it. It's, you know, if how to describe being knocked out to someone who has not <laughs> been knocked out, like, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's like you, your limbs feel sluggish, your thoughts feel sluggish. Like everything is just it's like you're wading through mud. You know, like all of a sudden your, your body doesn't respond the way you want it to. Everything, everything slows down except for the person that is hitting you.
1: <laughs> it's almost like you're on a sedative. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind, of, kind of awful. <laughs> well, I think even for avid MMA fans, they don't quite understand that where they're yelling at the screen, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And if they got hit and they got buzzed, even if you ask them two plus two, they might not even be able to answer that question at the time. Their IQ went from whatever and it diminished the half of what that was, you know?
2: Yeah. And I mean, everybody likes citing that statement by, I'm pretty sure it was Mike Tyson who said at first, you know, everybody's got a plan. And so they get punched in the mouth. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing. Like once you get hit, like you fall back on instinct, you fall back on what you've trained because your, your conscious decision-making kind of goes out the window.
1: A lot of people take that statement to mean once you get hit, you get scared. And then it's about like how you act when you're scared. And it's not really about that. It's not about fear. If you step in the cage, you're probably already scared. But secondly, whatever is going to happen, you've already accepted that. It's more like your brain is not functioning the way it used (laughs) to. So you hope you have enough muscle memory to just go on autopilot.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's honestly, why some of the mistakes that I made in the fight happened because of this specific way that I trained in camp. Um, like in the first round when we clinched up and, uh, she kind of went for a takedown and I sprawled on it and stuffed it. And I, I had the, I had the presence of mind to hit her in the ribs a couple times where I had connected and hurt her before. But if I had actually been following any kind of logical game plan, I would have tried to take her back at that moment. But in camp, most of the people that I sparred with there, there, I mean, there were some tall rangy fighters, but the way the camp was like most of the tall rangy fighters were sparring with other tall rangy fighters, different weight classes, you know? Um, so most of the people I ended up sparring with were either women, my size or even smaller and then like really short, stocky wrestlers and what kept happening there is they would take me down and hold me down, you know, and so in camp, my instinct was always, well, you know, if I go to the ground, I need to get up, I need to get up. And because I was still so dazed, and that's just what I had been doing for the past four months, instead of taking her back and finishing the the, the fight then, my instinct was to stand up and... <laughs> and and fight you know on the feet again and that was definitely to my detriment in this fight so word of advice you know this this comes from like military stuff too but
3: train like you fight right so this is also another um feeling and sensation that anyone who has an experience still probably be hard to explain it to them but uh how did you feel like after you got that win and while you were waiting for the official announcement When, uh, all that, uh, all that adrenaline and everything kind of releases, how did that feel?
2: Oh boy. Uh, geez, I'm really bad at describing feelings, aren't (laughs) I? Um,
1: well, you're describing experiences that even you haven't had a lot in your life, right? So it's like an experience you've had once now tell us what it's like. Yeah. (laughs)
3: Right. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, Gosh, it it was honestly, it was a whirlwind because there were post fight interviews and stuff. And um, I don't know what happened. And I don't know if this came across in uh, any of the I, I don't even know if they aired any of the post fight interview stuff. But I was choking on something. Um, I feel like I inhaled like a droplet of blood or something like I don't know if I was bleeding in my in my sinuses and inhaled or something but but I kept coughing, my voice was messed up because like I took a real deep breath and just something got caught in like my bronchioles maybe so so like I'm coughing I'm still <laughs> dazed as hell from getting punched uh i mean i my equilibrium was off for a good while after the fight. I kept stumbling uh two or three times I stumbled um that evening after after the fight. Um, but yeah, so, so there's the emotional come down all at once. Like the fight's finally over this, this thing that has been the only thing I've thought about and trained for, for the past four months. Like my entire life was on hold for this fight and now the fight's done, you know, and, but then I also know like, okay, now the bigger fight is coming because I know what's going to happen on social media. Um, and you know, you think you're prepared for it until it actually starts. Um. So it just, I, I had all these thoughts flying through my head at a million miles an hour all at once. Um. Yeah. I, I don't know. It just, just everything was coming at me at once. And I was like, Oh, I hope I don't screw up with these post fight interviews. You know, I want to, you know, my, my conditioning coach wanted me to shout him out. I got to remember to do that. Uh, You know, I got, (laughs) got to remember to get my sponsorship shirt on, you know, like I, I have to make sure I don't say anything stupid. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. Oh my God, I just won this fight. Did that really happen? Holy shit. She hit me so hard. Oh, why can't I breathe right now? Holy crap. You know, like, Oh, but surprisingly my cardio held up. Awesome. Thanks coach, John. You know, like just, just all these thoughts, like, just one one giant sloshing whirlpool of all these different thoughts and emotions and um yeah it's basically in a word chaos you know <laughs> and and yet you're you're standing there and like I'm when I go back and look at the footage and look at the photos like I look calm but like yeah I don't know <laughs> it was just
1: <laughs> so much going on what did your corner tell you after round 1 cuz we've been discussing round one and how you got dazed and we're all friends here. You've probably lost that round. So, (laughs) Oh,
2: there's, there's no probably about it. Like I definitely lost round one.
1: Okay. Okay. We could admit that. So what did your corner tell you after round one?
2: Uh, you know, it's really hard to remember right now. Um, and the thing is like, I do remember specifically, marino telling me hey you know like stop throwing the leg kick she's timing it but i'm not sure that he told me that I, I i'm not sure if he told me that in in the pause between rounds or if that was something that he yelled at me during the second round because i remember i threw a couple leg kicks there in the second round um but now the big thing was that you know the distance management i really needed to manage my distance i ne- he told me i needed to keep forward pressure on her because I did, you know, I would throw like one or two punches, and then I'd step back out of range, and then I'd have to come back in again. You know, um, I wasn't coming offline. You know, I, I don't know. Sorry, I'm getting into the the things that I'm critiquing. I'm trying to remember what he said to me right now is is really difficult. Um, I just remember forward pressure and to stop throwing the leg kick because she was timing it. And also there was some concern because like I'd, I'd pulled a hamstring like the Friday before and he was worried about, because we just had, uh, we had another fighter with a hamstring injury that was a lot more serious than mine. Um, he like, he might've tore it, tore it in, during his fight. Um, and we didn't want to repeat of that. So he, I was cautioned against throwing too many
1: kicks. I think that's an important point because in a fight, the corner is constantly yelling stuff at you and constantly talking to you. Every minute of the fight, they're saying something. So it's hard to differentiate. Which part of that stuff did they tell me between the rounds and which part of that stuff was just stuff they told me during the fight? It's hard to know, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, honestly, the only thing that I can clearly remember was definitely in between the rounds was him saying, oh, well, we don't need water anyway, because like he had we ran out of time in the corner before I got to drink any water. Like I didn't get to drink any water in between there. And he was like, Oh yeah, we're good. We don't need water anyway. And that, that's, that's the main thing that I can 100% sure say happened
1: between the rounds. (laughs) It's like the least likely thing that you think would happen is the thing you remember, right? Running out of water. Yeah.
2: It's also like the, the least important one, you know, like he gave gave me all these instructions for what to do. And I'm sitting there like nodding, like, yeah, yeah, I got it. Got it. And then the only thing that I can clearly remember is that I didn't get to take a drink of water.
1: <laughs> you looked a lot calmer and better adjusted in round two. Do you feel like it took you around to find your sea legs being this being your first fight? Um,
2: I think that's how long it took me to recover my wits after getting getting uh my bell rung like i mean most of the first round was pretty much a daze um you know i I cannot i cannot um adequately express just how close i was to losing consciousness (laughs) like yeah that i mean it, it was tough it was tough but this the second round i came out and um i definitely like had my wits about me a little more um i actually started throwing my jab and landing it (laughs) instead of just spamming the right hand (laughs) um that that was the big thing is just that 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 very nearly losing consciousness in the first round like it, it took me a pretty long time to recover there you know whether it looked like it or not like i i did not have my wits about me fully until
3: the second round started a thing I think happens a lot with some fighters is that uh, while you're in camp and you're training and you're getting ready for the fight, you have this constant feeling of like, I can't wait for this to be over. I've been putting my life on hold for this. Like This is really annoying to have to keep doing this and keep getting ready for this fight, especially when it keeps getting pushed back or like different things like that keep happening. But uh, I think it's also a pretty common thing that fighters will say all of that, really feel that way, and then once the fight is over, they're kind of... Really, just kind of craving being back into that space, and uh I'm interested if there's any of that for you or if you're just really looking forward to taking your time until you get back in there.
2: oh God, uh I absolutely am missing it already honestly um and I think it's it's probably a pretty common thing for fighters, but I know just me specifically like my mental health really suffers if if i don't have a set schedule if i'm not being physically active um that that's the thing that i've noticed like i mean for anybody that doesn't know like i have a long history of you know lifelong ptsd major depression um and i'm also one of those people that's really afraid of uh Psychotropic medications you know i'm I'm really afraid of all the the side effects um, I'm just afraid of medications in general and that's probably part of my upbringing um, and I try to get over those fears, but when it comes to altering brain chemistry it just it scares me so I try to get by on you know I, I've never taken any kind of um, psych meds and i've I've noticed that really the only thing that helps stabilize my mood and keep me like functional is exercise. Um, and I'm not one of those people that's going to say, Oh, well, you know, if it works for me, it'll work for everybody. All you have to do is go out and take a hike and you'll be better. Like, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely not that person because I know like a lot of people absolutely do need uh chemical support for their brain function. And I would probably benefit from it. Like, there's no doubt I would benefit from it, but I'm, I'm honestly too afraid to really, uh, step in to dip my toe in those waters. But I have noticed that if I'm out of the, I noticed during camp on Sundays, when we had a day off, my mood would dip noticeably. And, um, like right now it's a little over a week after the fight and I have not been training for this week. I figured I would take two weeks where I was just going to kind of chill eat what I wanted to relax, you know, I mean, right now I'm staring at another dozen donuts. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Wait, once the interview is done, I'm going to tear into those, but, um, but no, I, I've just been relaxing and eating and, um, you know, seeing some of my friends and it's, it's good to take that time off, but I am already anxious to get back in the gym. And I mean, part of that too, is just, you know, for, for managing, managing my stress levels um you know with some of the really nasty comments i was getting online and just the outright abuse um i guess it was about halfway through the week i really just felt like i needed to be in the gym i i wanted to hit something i wanted to lift something i wanted to run you know i just really needed to burn off some of that frustration so um i you know i can't speak for all fighters but i know that um i'm i'm already anxious to get back in the gym and i'm gonna make myself not do that for the next week
3: (laughs) a lot of people are going to be getting introduced to you as you know this tough trans mma fighter that is dealing with all of this hate and you know is an mma fighter so she must be tough all the time and like really rough exterior but i know you as a friend so what i'm interested in hearing about is uh what are some other interests and stuff you have outside of fighting
2: uh <sighs> well I really like baking pies. <laughs> um you know I I have an art degree and while my my concentration was in sculpture and metalwork I really like drawing um and I really like painting. I feel like I'm not as good of a painter as I would like to be but you know it's it's something I enjoy. Um Yeah I've just I've I've always I mean, you know, I'm a trans girl with all the baggage that comes with that, you know, like uh, growing up, I was always into things that were not appropriate for what people perceived my gender to be. Um, You know, I'm really into Japanese Lolita fashion, you know, Um, (laughs) and that's, you know, like now I'm pushing 40 and I'm still really into this fashion, but I, I haven't had any opportunity to wear it for a couple of years, you know, because I've been, you know, since I moved to Portland, I've basically been... Very politically active to the exclusion of just about everything else. Um, so, you know, the whole work life balance thing hasn't really entered into the equation. So, my personal life has definitely taken a back seat to all the other things I've been doing. But, but yeah, given the option, like when I moved to Portland, I had this idea of like Portlandia. You know, I thought I was just going to come up here and make art and wear cute clothes and bake pies and just have a nice, chill, relaxing life. And that was not the case.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into the rest of your life, I just had one last question about the fight. We've kind of taken listeners on a journey reliving the fight with you, except for how the fight ended. So let's finish that out. Round two, you started looking better, but Celine was still landing her shots. You got the takedown. You were getting some body shots in and passing. You were looking good. Those of us watching from home were getting excited. It's like, okay, take down, body shots, passing, great. And then you got reversed. What went through your mind right there where you were like, okay, I'm doing good. And then boom, she flips you over.
2: Oh God. Uh, (laughs) I don't think I even had any conscious thoughts except don't be on the bottom. Don't be on the bottom. You better fix this. no, I mean honestly part of me was still fairly calm because I mean Celine's weakness before this has been her ground game. Um and while she I feel like she's definitely made some improvements on it from the fights that I saw before, it's still like even as rudimentary as my own ground game is, like, I kind of feel like I did have an advantage there because of our builds. You know, like she's tall and lanky and wiry and She she didn't really keep her weight in her hips, you know, so as soon as she is like, while I gave up position there, um, it was pretty easy to hip out to the side and take her back.
1: Was that a move that you had drilled before a lot in training or was that just improvisation in the moment? It's
2: it's one of those things where we didn't like do we didn't specifically drill trying to hip out from the bottom. I don't think like, I mean, we did all kinds of drills that involve doing that. Um, but it, it really was just kind of an instinctive thing that I did based on like my, my coaches had really hammered into me, like, you know, control your weight, control your hips, you know, know where your hips are, whether you're trying to put in, wh- whether you're trying to lock in, in a, a, a triangle choke or, you know, whatever you're trying to do, you really have to pay attention to your hip position. And so that was the first thing on my mind. As soon as I end up on the bottom in a grappling exchange, I'm very conscious of where are my hips, you know, where, where do I need to put them? And so as soon as she reversed me there, um, my first thought was like, I I need to get my hips out. And then as soon as I did and got them around to the side, you know, taking her back kind of went really smoothly uh surprisingly smoothly if anybody had told me that i was going to win the fight by submission i wouldn't have believed them because my (laughs) plan was i mean my game plan was like go to the ground if i had to but i was thinking much more of a you know top position uh ground and pound kind of finish
1: and i don't think people are appreciating the way it ended meaning the way you ended there is no better technical way to end where It's not about strength, right? The whole premise of jiu-jitsu is that the person on bottom can be weaker and use technique to beat the person. And as rudimentary as Celine Provost's ground game is, that was like a nice little exchange between you two where you got to take down your passing, she reversed you, and then you were able to reverse back onto the back. So obviously the people who are attacking you don't appreciate the technique, but even for people who want to defend you, they have to understand that what happened right there, that was all technique you could have somebody very strong and somebody very weak on the bottom and you could still execute that technique exactly the same way as it went, because that is the point of jujitsu and ground fighting, you know?
2: Yeah. And, uh, I think you might've said this on Twitter, uh, the, the whole thing about like, people like to talk about jujitsu as being like highly technical (laughs) and, and, uh, (laughs) And that's, that's how, uh, uh, someone who's weaker or, you know, like so- someone with better technique can prevail over someone stronger. But of course, now that that's what I did, well, now jujitsu is definitely all about raw strength, right? <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> they've better take down all their previous marketing material then. Cause they've been lying to us.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Right, <laughs> I know.
1: Well, it works differently when trans people do it. Uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, like trans people, uh, you know, a 145 pound fighter that's trans weighs more than a 145 pound fighter that's cis because she's made of trans.
1: You know? <laughs> and that's the other thing people don't bring up is there's a weight division and you're both in the same weight division and no two fighters ever look the same in the same weight division. It's almost always one fighter is the taller one and one fighter is the shorter one. And they look like that because they're in the same weight division. So the shorter one is going to be wider. The taller one is going to be lankier.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how that works. That's how that's always worked in MMA. Um, And it's just, it's really frustrating. And, and like, I mean, I know that they're being disingenuous and I hope that other people realize they're being disingenuous, but like, there's a reason that all of these transphobes are showing pictures of me pre-transition when they talk about this fight. You know, because they've they've got people under the impression that, oh, a skinny, helpless little hundred and forty pound girl stepped into the ring with some like, you know, six and a half foot tall, bearded heavyweight. And you know, first off, like I've never been a heavyweight in my life. You know, like even when I was at my biggest and most jacked, I'm still only five seven. You know, when I the, the the biggest I've ever been when I was like eating six thousand calories a day and and pounding creatine like it was going out of style i was up to 190 you know like that's still like, basically like middleweight you know and except you know actual middleweights cutting weight like realistically i w- would have been like a lightweight fighter <laughs> at that point mm-hmm. you know uh-huh. but um yeah like so they they have to misrepresent my proportions they have to misrepresent my appearance um because they're trying to generate that outrage. Like, look, this man just beat up this helpless girl. And honestly, it's, it's frankly, it's misogynistic. You know, we've got, I've, I've had probably four or five different, uh, trans fighters now, like trans women fighters who, I mean, honestly, I can't really take most of them seriously because they, you know, they haven't gone and gotten a pro card. They haven't like fought serious fights, but they're like, Oh, well we're doing the right thing by fighting men. Because we know that, you know, we're always going to be better than real women. You know, like they're disrespecting themselves and they're disrespecting cis women fighters. Because I guarantee you, like, like the one girl, she lost a tough man fight where she, you know, it's like boxing rules where, um, you know, it's boxing rules with untrained fighters. And she was turning her back to her opponent. It was only one minute rounds and they were playing dude looks like a lady over her bout. God, Mm. you know, it, it was just, so I'm looking at this and I'm like, well, you have no self-respect and you clearly don't respect cis women fighters. And I can tell you, Celine would have tuned these girls up like any of them. Like, and and that's, that's the thing, like what it comes down to with transphobia, internalized transphobia, uh, it all really just boils down to misogyny. Uh, You know, people really believe that, uh, someone with an XY chromosome is just inherently better at athletics, inherently better at fighting just by virtue of, you know, an accident of birth. And, you know, like I said on Twitter, any girl from MMA masters would absolutely, beat the crap out of 90% of men and men don't want to acknowledge that. But I mean, we've seen the thing where like, was it like 10 or 11% of men think they can
3: win a fist fight with an elephant. So you know, <laughs> I just want to touch on two things real quick, which was one, I keep thinking it's really hilarious. Every time I see a photo where someone is um, showing the photo of you and Celine facing off in the ring. And they think that Celine is the trans woman because she's taller than you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, The other thing is connecting all of this to the misogyny of men and when they are transmisogynist, how that's rooted in just basic misogyny. I also find a lot of it to be rooted in this fragility of male egos, where they want to believe that they are physically superior to anyone who is a woman no matter what, and that it is inalienable, and that there's nothing that could ever change it. And it's just they end up putting it off on trans folks like you and other trans folks like fallon who have fought and are athletes they end up putting that insecurity off on just trans people in general because they don't want to admit that they are not some ultimate viking berserker warrior that like has innate superpowers because they happen to have a penis
2: yeah yeah um to listen to these people, one athletic performance is stored in the balls, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, yeah. I mean, they really do have this idea that their masculinity just makes them better. Period. Like every every untrained guy sitting on the couch thinks that he can beat world class women in any athletic endeavor. Um, and they'll, I mean, that's, that's just what they believe. You know, they, they think that any man can get off the couch and completely dominate any world-class woman in a sport. And it's just not the case. Um, you know, and they'll try to trot out like, oh, so-and-so did this study and like, oh, you know, like, uh, Olympic level women compete at the same level as high school men in whatever sport. And it's like, um, I, I haven't even looked at those those things because it's just it doesn't pass the laugh test to me you know and like i said you know it's i've become schrodinger's fighter where i'm simultaneously completely unskilled and the only reason i withstood the onslaught was my inherent masculinity something something dense bones whatever um but i'm also too dangerous to be in the ring you know uh they they keep saying oh well you know you transitioned just to fight women because you couldn't fight men you know never mind that i was a special forces operator doing what special forces operators do um you know like it, it, all it is it, just any opportunity to disrespect trans women because we're one of the one of the last remaining demographics that it is socially acceptable to completely shit on. So I don't know. I just, I hope things change and I hope I can be part of that, but it's, it's still rough out here, you
1: know? Now, a lot of people are bringing up your military past, which you've already brought up to attack you and are making a through line from being a soldier to a fighter and how even that gave you an advantage. But knowing you, They're making a false parallel because the reason for you doing MMA is different from you joining the military. You mentioned that you joined the military to become a quote unquote man or die, right? To find this masculinity that society wants you to have or to die because you hate yourself. Whereas MMA wasn't about you wanting to die or live a lie, but about you accepting your truth and healing and wanting to live. One of the things you mentioned privately to me and to some of the other uh, Southpaw members is consent, how MMA is something where you know what you're getting into, and both you and your opponent have given consent. There were several other opponents before Selim Provost, and they said no, and that's their right to say no, because no one can force them to fight other than probably capitalism. But war is not like that because war is not about consent and people involved are not always prepared or even know what they're getting into. People in a war aren't asked, do you consent? Do you want to participate? Some people like to make war sound noble and like to bring up how their MMA fighters compare themselves to soldiers. But you've talked about how war itself is a violation, whereas two people fighting in a mutually consented fight is not. Though in an MMA fight you will get bloody, it's not the blood on your hands that war brings and doesn't come with the same trauma. You actually don't hear about any psychological trauma from the fight itself, it's always from the pressures of the fight. If war is so morally ethical, it wouldn't cause so much PTSD. So, can you speak to us about this honoring of war? and the healing aspect of martial arts. And by martial arts, I don't mean dealing with the fans, but the autonomy martial arts gives you that you've already touched upon.
2: Yeah. Um, sorry, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance because whenever I talk about this stuff, I do get emotional. So just just a heads up there. Um, yeah, we we have this idea of of war as being this noble thing and that that's that's been a pattern throughout history at least in you know quote unquote western civilization um and it's in in a word it's bullshit it's complete bullshit um you know this whole idea of might makes right to the exclusion of all else and then but you'll condescend to have rules where oh well you know we won't we won't kill civilians we won't burn cities to the ground except that we don't follow those fucking rules um you know like when when people when people say things when people utter the words acceptable levels of civilian casualties, they've, they've already lost any, any claim to any kind of moral superiority. There is no acceptable level of civilian casualties. You know, there's, there's sort of this, this famous, um, this famous sort of gotcha question for special operations selection. I think that it was initially used for like, uh, Delta Force CAG, whatever, you know, the, this hypothetical of, you know, your, your team is in a position and, and you're, compromised by a child and you know this child's going to go tell your location um and then your mission's compromised and your men might die do you kill the kid or not and that was sort of like a gotcha question back in the day but like for me there's no question about it that kid is not a combatant that kid is not part of that war and they shouldn't be and that's that's the biggest problem that i have (sighs) sorry, give me a second. Um, you know, like when we talk about war, it's, it's easy for Americans to, to say, Oh, you know, like this is a just war or, you know, like, Oh, we need to be there. Like it's easy to have these, these, uh, ideologies that tell us that we're the ones that are responsible for, for policing the world. Like, Oh, we're, we're keeping people safe. we're, we're, fighting for women's rights in afghanistan which is not true like we we didn't we didn't improve anything in afghanistan you know like the the war itself was won in the first 48 hours you know uh and then we spent 20 years over there making contractors rich um you know like all that blood all the like like all we did is we ruined lives we we made children afraid of us You know, we, we made sure that there will be another generation that's ready to die fighting us because of the shit we did. Um, you know, and, and when you're a civilian in the United States, you don't have, you know, your, your, your house isn't burnt down. You don't have people like in full battle rattle kicking in your door and dragging your father into the street, you know? Um, well, I say that white people don't you know but if you look at if you look at the history of the United States like i don't know i mean there there are lots of people that are mad at me and saying that i've lost my military bearing and oh i shouldn't even you know i can't call myself a veteran anymore it's like well one you can't tell me i'm not a veteran uh you know you you can't take away the fact that i fought an, in a war for the United States like as much as i wish that were the case as much as i wish that could be taken back you know, I've got a lot to atone for um and and uh, I don't know, they just they American culture places state violence on a pedestal you know, and, and this, this ties into a lot of ideas of toxic masculinity in the U S like, basically we tell men that the only way they can be real men is to do violence to other people. And the only right way to do that violence is with state approval, whether you're a cop or a soldier or whatever. Um, and then it's always justified, you know, and this, this is, this is a problem that I've had with my therapist in the past through the VA, you know, like initially when I went in there, and she's like, oh, well, you were just doing your job. And I'm like, that that doesn't fucking excuse anything. You know, Nazi prison guards were doing their job and they were wrong. You know, and yeah, I'm going to try not to get too much into it because like my. Yeah, I, I have a lot of critique of the united states at this point you know like like what it comes down to like like we we grow up with all this propaganda about how you know like oh freedom this freedom that but at the the same time that we were saying all men are created equal the people that said it owned slaves they were deciding who counted as a man you know women didn't count black people didn't count you know it's just it's hypocrisy from the get-go you know it's it's an army built by slaves on the bones of indigenous people. Um, and you know, at some point in the, in the distant future, we'll be remembered for that.
3: I feel like this particular crossroads is a place that I think it becomes really easy to, um, see the moral bankruptcy in a lot of, um, like right-wing ideology as, a. And it's just really insidious too, because they will try to claim to have the moral high ground on everything. They will try to claim that they're doing the right thing, that they're doing it for just causes, all of those things. But um, when you can look at it and see that they are all about, you know, support your troops, um, being here for the military after they've come back from war and everything like that, until that veteran is trans, until that veteran is homeless, until that veteran is black, until that veteran, you know, says that what they were doing at war was bullshit and not worth doing and a crime, then all of that support goes out the window. And it's just a really easy way to tell that, like, the morality that they're claiming isn't there. They just view the military as a tool.
2: Yeah, well, you would would think that that would be obvious and that people would recognize that but I'm, I'm noticing more and more that that's not the case. You know, like the same people that are messaging me saying that I'm the scum of the earth because I'm a woman beater, um, because I will always be a real man and something, something penis, something, something chromosome. Like it's, it it's always the same shit where they act like I'm scum of the earth for having a consensual athletic contest with another woman. But they won't acknowledge that, like, oh, okay, we just, we just used a drone to blow up a wedding and killed a bunch of innocent people, including women and children. Um, but we're just going to act like that didn't happen. Just, just don't even speak that into, into conscious thought. Right. Um, and, and it, it's easy. For them to do that because like as a culture in America, we have dehumanized the rest of the world. We've decided it's us and them and them don't count as human. Them don't matter, you know? And, um, and that's, that's sort of, that's, that's the position that minorities hold in the United States. We're all other, you know, whether you're black or Latino or Muslim or trans or gay, whatever it is, you're not part of us. And as a result, your your humanity is you know you're not human, so your death doesn't matter, your suffering doesn't matter, and that's that's how the United States justifies almost everything they do. So, you know, I'm the ultimate traitor because I'm critical of the United States, I'm critical of our foreign policy, I'm critical of capitalism and the ways that it makes us like just destroy each other, Um, but also like I'm a traitor to masculinity, uh, I, I call into question all of their assumptions about, you know, the physical bodies of men and women, you know, and like, you know they they don't want to acknowledge that. Oh, a former special forces operator who was the absolute pinnacle of manhood almost just lost a fight to a French woman.
1: You know, it's like <laughs> and on top of that, she was French.
2: Yeah, she was French. All right. Just the, the ridiculous shit that we do here. Um, uh, don't. I'm I'm going to say like, don't get me started, even though we're so far into this conversation. <laughs>
1: So let's talk about that. Some people hate you for being trans, like you talked about. Others hate you for your progressive politics. Some for both. So can you talk to us about your political evolution then?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to preface this by saying I wish I was a better person from the get-go. Um, you know, like I I know... Okay. Granted, it's a very small number, but I do know one or two white cis guys that, you know, have good politics that kind of always had good politics for as long as I know. But, um, you know, like a lot of Americans, um, I grew up basically apolitical. Um, you know, I was, I was raised in an environment where, my family went to church five times a week and I was expected to do the same until, you know, some extenuating circumstances made it to where my parents didn't feel uh, like they could make me go to church anymore, you know. Um, but when you grow up in this environment where you do not hear other voices, you know, um, it's it's hard to, you know, nobody's immune to propaganda. And I don't think people realize just how propagandized the United States is. Um, you know, I still remember when I was in high school, I I was in AP U.S. history, but I also took a history of minority groups class. They were both taught by the same teacher. And uh, I was the only white kid in the history of minorities groups class. And um, in our textbook, there was the only mention of positive representation for queer people I had seen in my entire school career. And it was just a little throwaway paragraph, like talking about queer rights. And at the time, like this was, this was like the late nineties. Um, I was like, Oh wait, it's, there are people that think it's okay to be queer, you know? And, and this, so I had this AP U S history class and this history of minorities groups class the same day and the same teacher in AP U S history said oh the civil war was absolutely about states rights and uh slavery was only ended to weaken the south during the war and then the same teacher made direct pointed eye contact with me in history of minority groups and said oh the civil war was absolutely fought over freeing the slaves and there was almost this unspoken like okay don't don't spill the beans in here You know, like this sort of understanding of like, oh, well, you know, you're white, you know, not to talk about this, you know, and, and it's just this, I've noticed that in situations of abuse, there's always this expectation of secrecy, right? You know, like a rapist does not want you to talk about what they've done, you know, um, a parent that beats you doesn't want you to go to the guidance counselor and talk about it. Like that's, that's the thing when silence always benefits those with the power and those with the power to abuse it. Um, you know, that, that silence is what leads to the horrible things happening. And that's why, like, when you look at the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, like those whistleblowers were extremely important, you know, Um, that's why when, when a victim speaks out, like that is such a powerful act and it's such a necessary act for survival. And yet as a culture, we've just accepted this bully mentality of, you know, the people in power are right. You know, we have to maintain secrets. We have to keep these secrets and uphold the status quo. So when a victim comes forward, they're always the one that's attacked, you know? And that's just that's a pattern that I'm noticing, and I'm not going to be quiet. <laughs> I'm just not going to be quiet anymore because secrecy only benefits those in power.
1: Do you think what drew you to that class was that you already felt like you were different, and so hearing a different story interested you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, while you know, in in South Carolina, the high school that I went to, Airport High School, you know, it was it, it was there were lots of black kids there. There were a few Hispanic kids there. Um, but even within the school, it felt very segregated, you know, like when I was on the track team, um, most of the, most of the track team was black. Um, and, the few white kids that were on the track team were on the distance team and the black kids were all like the sprinters and the shot putters and everything. Um, you know, when, when you broke down classes in school, all of your college prep classes and AP classes were almost exclusively white and all of your remedial classes and all of your, you know, tech prep classes were your minority students, you know, and on the rare occasions that that you had uh, black kids and white kids in the same classes, the black kids were treated differently. You know, you'd have a white kid that's a class clown getting away with like basically mouthing off to the teacher every day, but then like a black kid would laugh too loud and have the school resource officer you know, have a cop called on him, and they'd be taken out of the class in handcuffs. Um, and it was something that was like so very overtly obvious but there was just this unspoken, this unspoken understanding that you did not draw attention to it because then you'd have to examine your entire fucking life, you know? Um, so, so yeah, I wish I were a better person growing up. I wish I had been able to sort of wrap my head around those ideas and address that stuff. But, you know, I was so wrapped up in my own trauma that I didn't get politically engaged until I was in the army. You know, I I thoughtlessly, you know, like when I was in the army, it was just, oh, well, you know, Obama bad because Obama, Democrat, Democrat weak, you know? So, so like, I think I had like, I had like a, some anti-Obama sticker on my truck. that was like no Obama or something. It was just some stupid shit like that. And it, I wasn't even politically engaged. Uh, I didn't know anything about politics. I didn't care about politics. It was just, that was part of your identity You know, you're a white male, you have to be a Republican, you know. Um, But then, like, when I was in Afghanistan, I had some very eye-opening experiences. And, you know, at at some point, I just, I couldn't look away anymore. Um, You know, you... you (sighs) At some point, it just becomes too obvious. That the human suffering that's taking place is completely unnecessary, and nothing that you're doing is alleviating it and And it just it becomes incredibly obvious that it's all lip service, you know, so. So I mean I just I reached a point where I couldn't look away anymore, and then when I actually decided to transition, you know, and I started taking sociology classes and and I started hanging out with the feminist collective and you know things like that.
1: Wait, is that all part of transitioning? Do they make you do that?
2: Oh yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's
1: a it's a full indoctrination program, right? It's a five year thing.
2: Yeah yeah they they brand you uh, with a hammer and sickle, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> But 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 no, like on a serious note, like it it was just when I finally was given any access at all to other perspectives, like suddenly things were clicking and it all made sense. And but it's just people don't realize like I was in my 20s and had already fought a fucking war before I had before I had different perspectives presented to me. You know, the the farthest the farthest left perspective I had seen up to that point was Bill Clinton, for fuck's sake, you know. <laughs> so. So, yeah, I mean, people just yeah, I, I think people outside of the United States don't realize just how propagandized we are and people inside the United States definitely don't realize how propagandized we are because we grew up in it.
1: Well, it sounds like you had a lot of observations you've made, like in high school. It didn't necessarily change you back then, but you were just storing it in the memory banks, but you didn't know what to do with those observations, but you were making note. And then once you started taking these classes, then you were like, oh, that's why my mind was making a highlighter note about what I saw today, because I knew something was off. I knew something was happening and I didn't have a system to understand it yet.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was, you know, my gut feeling is that this is wrong, but also in America we're taught don't trust gut feelings. You know, we, we have this whole oh logic and reason, you know, and like who whoever remains calm in an argument is the winner, regardless of what's said, right? But no, like what it comes down to is like sometimes you do have to trust your feelings, and when your gut feeling when you're when you're someone who grows up in an abusive environment and you're hurt by people with power over you and then you recognize those same dynamics playing out with other people. Um, you know, even, even if you can't consciously grapple with it, even if you're wrapped up in your own trauma, there's still, there's that gut reaction where you see yourself there, you know? And, and I hate that it took me, I hate that it took me so long to, intellectualize you know to to really understand that that's what was happening and i hate uh, i i wish i could go back i wish i could undo uh, well you know wishes don't really do anything and you can't unkill somebody but We'll just we'll just say I, I have regrets about Afghanistan.
1: But sounds like it all happened in tandem, the transition and your political awakening.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I wish I were a better person, but I didn't really get politically involved and, you know, I didn't really wake up to the reality of things until I was the direct target of attacks you know and i mean the thing is like i had already been the direct target of attacks like my whole life but i was still trying to convince myself like oh i'm not one of the queers you know i'm i'm not you know the f word uh you know because and and that's the thing like you you're told that you are not this thing that is the the target you know like you have i mean crap my 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 parents told me to stop making myself such a target you know like being feminine made me a target and i needed to man up and you know they're saying this to a five-year-old you know um and and this is the kind of shit like you you internalize those messages you know and oh god i don't want to go off on another tangent here but the whole uh you know transphobic argument of Male socialization, like I'm going to tell you now, a trans girl internalizes every negative message, you know, the ones about masculinity and the ones about femininity. You know, I was simultaneously like, I was never going to be big and strong and masculine and, and ripped enough, but at the same token, by the same token, like I was never going to be small and petite and, and pretty enough, you know, like I just felt like I inhabited this horrible lim- liminal space where I was never going to be a real man and never going to be a real woman. And frankly, like transition is it not only saved my life, but it, it put me in a position where I can actually like self-actualize, you know, like when I first transitioned, I was like, well, I don't want anything to do with anything combative. I don't want anything, you know, I'm not going to own weapons. I'm not going to hunt. I'm not going to do any of these things. You know, I'm, I'm just going to lean into this like feminine stereotype. But since I've transitioned and I've come to like fully realize myself, I, I don't unnecessarily gender all that shit anymore. You know, it's like, I can be a girl and still like to be you know like to train martial arts i can be a girl and still ride a motorcycle you know i can change my oil and it doesn't make me a man <laughs> you know like it's it, it's just ludicrous
3: I think there's, you know, this whole stereotype that people try to, like, accuse people of, of, especially trans people of, like, you know, trans people are all indoctrinated and all evil communists inherently and stuff like that, which obviously all three of us know. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners know that is that. absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's definitely trans people out there who are still right wing chuds. It still happens. And they all want to fight Alana right now. <laughs> but. I do think there is some truth to this um, correlation and I think it has to do a lot with like what Alana was talking about with that feeling like you have to to transition to go through that process. You have to dig so deep into everything you've been told about yourself and everything you've been told about your gender and everything you've been told about gender expression throughout your whole life that um, it does become a little bit easier when you make that realization that none of that's real, that it's all just been things that people have been pushing onto you. And then you start questioning more things about your life. And you start questioning, why well, why do people talk about America like this? Why is that true? Is that real? And the more you start looking into it, I think for me and for other people that are trans and their transition push them further left. I think that's a common thing to be like, you know, you're questioning everything about yourself and then you start questioning everything about the society you live in and you kind of come to some similar realizations about the uh the reality of things at that point
2: yeah i mean when you realize that some of the foundational truths that your life is built on are lies then you really have to start questioning everything you know like if, if the same people that told you how great America is also like told you that you are never going to be a woman and this, that this core aspect of yourself is just deeply inherently wrong. And the only righteous way for you to live is to hate yourself and to try to not be yourself to try to be literally anything else and like once you finally like break free of that prison once you realize that that was a lie then you you really have to say well shit consider the source you know the same people that wanted me to hate myself the same people that told me it was preferable for me to die than to be a woman told me how great america is and how free we are and then you really you know it it becomes a question of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, if, if they can't be trusted for that, what can they be trusted for?
1: I mean, you see that even with the people who attack you, where the same men who are attacking you are the same men who won't believe women about sexual assault.
2: I mean, and, and it's, it's really funny. Uh, and by funny, I mean like horrifying, but so many, so many people are calling me a domestic abuser. Because I fought a woman in a consensual fight in a cage. And it's like, well, one, there is consent involved here. Two, we're not dating. You know, domestic violence doesn't mean violence between two genders, it means violence between intimate partners. Um, And there seemed to be a lot of sort of it it feels like they're telling on themselves there are so (laughs) Mm -hmm. many men coming into my comments saying oh you found a legal way to beat women and it it comes across as almost sort of bitter you know like oh you motherfucker, you found a way to cheat the system i would go to jail for this as and and they act like men don't get away with this all the time
1: they're revealing how their mind works
2: yeah yeah, I mean, the man who raped me, I was not his only victim. I was the only one to come forward. I know of at least half a dozen others and he was never prosecuted because, you know, my parents talked me out of it. How old were you at the time? When I told on him and when they talked me out of prosecuting him, I was 10. Oh my god. I was 10. I was I was the youngest and smallest and most vulnerable of his victims and I was the only one to come forward. And um and the thing is like he was never prosecuted he got away with it uh he's not on any registry um and and this is the norm you know people want to talk like oh you know you found a legal way to beat on women you found a legal way to abuse women as if women aren't like constantly abused you know uh, there's sexual violence there's physical violence and it happens to thousands maybe millions of women every day and it, it you know it, and we never take it seriously um and it's just it's entirely disingenuous it's just like arguments about trans women using the bathroom you know the whole bathroom predator myth like i guarantee you if a man wants to rape a woman he's not going to transition to do it yeah
1: they don't need to
2: they don't need to
1: it's easier for them to become a cop to get away mm-hmm. with it mm-hmm. and also it doesn't make it easier in fact you as a cis man, especially a cis white man, you already have more power. Like you would be giving up power to do things. Mm-hmm. You would be giving up rights to transition.
2: But see, for for them to acknowledge that for them to acknowledge that a cis man has more power, then they have to acknowledge that privilege exists. They have to acknowledge that women are not treated equally. They have to acknowledge that black folks are not treated equally. And Most people in America are just not willing to look at that truth. It's a hard truth, you know, and that's, that's the thing about privilege. They don't want to acknowledge that whatever struggles they've had have been harder for other people who were positioned to lower down the ladder
1: than them. It's not like they're fighting for equal pay for women, right? Yeah. 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 It's very revealing.
2: It's like these people that are suddenly concerned with me personally destroying women's sports don't give a shit about women's sports in any other, you know, in any at any other time or in any other circumstance.
1: Yeah. A lot of them are the people like the bar stool type people where if there is women's sports on on TV or at a sports bar, they're like, turn that shit off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: The ones that are like, oh, nobody cares about the WNBA. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's horrible.
1: Now you've already talked about patterns in your life. Another pattern that I've noticed then is your love of arts along with martial arts do you find that they both come from the same place because it seems like the overarching theme seems to be about having control and expressing yourself
2: i would say yeah a a lot of that does come from the same place and i think part of it too is that the church that i grew up in like dancing was not something that was really acceptable Um, that might've changed since then, you know, my, my sisters were both allowed to dance ballet, but you know, like as a kid, I wanted to dance ballet, you know, I, I wanted to dance. I wanted to be graceful. I wanted to be beautiful. And these were things that were denied me. And I think early on when I was very young, like martial arts was the closest I could get to touching that, you know, because it's, it's pretty undeniable. If you go back And watch like a Bruce Lee movie. The way he moved, like it was a dance. You know, there was such fluidity and and just like self possession and power in his movements. Right. And as a kid, like that was my first exposure to martial arts was Bruce Lee movies. You know, Enter the Dragon. You know, and and you cannot watch the way Bruce moved and not feel something. And to me, you know. Like I was, (laughs) I was, uh, wearing my sister's leotard, you know, looking at ballet positions from a book that I had to secretly get from the library by the light of a street lamp shining in my window, you know, trying to teach myself to do ballet because I wasn't allowed to dance, uh, you know, and, and for me, like I said, the closest thing that I could get to that was martial arts. And because that was a masculine endeavor, that was more acceptable, you know? So, yeah, I I think for me, like my my love of martial arts and just art in general, I think they do spring a lot from the same place. You know, there is that that sort of um, not just reclaiming of self and reclaiming of body, but just even aesthetically, like there is a there's a certain beauty to it. And, you know, maybe it makes me shallow, but beauty is something that's always appealed to me.
1: I think also, especially for women and queer folk, it's like martial arts becomes one of the only socially accepted ways to move in unrestricted ways. Like women are only supposed to move like this Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in society, even, even boys, you're only supposed to move in these rote ways and these lines, right? Your movement is constrained. Whereas in martial arts, much like in dance, You're free to move in every direction without judgment. If you just lift both your arms to your side, anything where you're pulling your limbs away from your center, it's often feminized, right? So for boys, you're not allowed to move in those ways, but in martial arts, you are, right? Yeah. So I think for a lot of folks, it becomes like this place where I can move in all the different ways I always wanted to move in 360 degrees. And that's okay here, right? So I think that is also why it becomes attractive to a lot of people, a lot of chuds and right wing people who buy into the alpha male type of stereotype might even be drawn to martial arts for the violence, but there's something in them that also enjoys that free movement. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I I think so. You know, and, and that was, that was another thing that happened to me a lot as a kid, you know, the way I moved was criticized, Um, you know, like, I let my wrist bend, you know, my 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 hips moved too much, you know, like, oh, why are you switching? You know, like <laughs> it, like this these these were comments that I got, you know, and so basically like by the time I was a teenager, I was so self-conscious about my posture and my movements that uh, you know, people that knew me pre-transition, like I I almost wish you could have like some of my old friends like on the podcast to talk about it. People could recognize my gait from, you know, hundreds of yards away, like across a football field, someone knew it was me because I I walked like the Terminator. You know, like I made sure, oh, my hips must not move, my entire body must hang from my shoulders, and my shoulders have to be like level in space. Like I was so self-conscious. I'd be mowing the yard. And there'd be nobody around anywhere. But in my head, I was like, well, you know, there might be somebody behind a tree that can see me and I can't let anyone see my hips move, you know, and, and it was, mm-hmm. it, it was like the the whole panopticon idea. And it's like, you're, someone's always watching. God is watching you. God, God doesn't want you to let your hips wiggle, you know, like just <laughs> just this, just this ridiculous, like, like fascistic mindset. You know, like if you act like a girl, if you move like a girl, well, that's sinful and bad and you're going to hell, you know, and and that is not a way to live. No, I don't. I I honestly do not know how I'm as well adjusted as I am,
1: (laughs) frankly. (laughs) But that is related to God and the church, too. Right. Even dancing in some churches isn't allowed.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you get down to it, like so much of Western civilization, as we call it, whether it's the religious aspects or or any other aspects, like we are so deeply misogynistic that, you know, femininity of any kind is absolutely despised. You know, any outward representation of it is is hated even having a good time <laughs> oh yeah yeah if if you're having a good time if, if you're being too sensuous well that's that's feminine you know like mm-hmm. don't enjoy yourself that's feminine it yeah. used to be like you couldn't eat sweets you know sweets were for children and women mm-hmm. you know like don't eat ice cream that's too feminine like that it's just this ridiculous idea that masculinity means depriving yourself of all joy mm-hmm. and who the fuck wants to live like that?
1: Well, isn't that the origins of the slur when it was a slur being gay, right? It originally meant being happy, Yeah. but it got read that if you are having too good of a time, then you're being like a woman, Mm -hmm. you're being gay, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas a man should be able to deprive themselves and just have a little bit of fun, but (laughs) not too much fun. So it's almost like saying men aren't supposed to have fun or western civilization you're not supposed to have too much fun otherwise you're other you're gay you're mm-hmm. a permanent foreigner
2: this is why we lionize violence this is why you know the things that we declare are masculine are so horrible you know it, it's this idea that the the only good things for men are to be tough and strong and stoic you know don't have feelings unless it's anger you know it, any emotional outburst that you have has to involve harm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's beaten into us from childhood. I mean, sometimes literally, you know?
3: Yeah. Speaking from experience. I might have like learned that I was trans earlier if I had been made fun of for walking like a girl instead of people <laughs> saying I walked like George Jefferson.
1: <laughs> so they read something. Yeah, yeah. But they read it in a racist way. <laughs> mm-hmm. I had too much bounce in my step, is what they always told me. Well, the history of homophobia and even... Decency laws and anti-vice laws are also rooted in xenophobia and anti-Blackness. White supremacy is also about white masculinity. This is why critical race theory is always lumped together with homosexuality. So queerness can be read as Blackness because a white transphobe and homophobe will almost always also be a racist.
3: Yeah. Then uh, my full point was, um, I wanted to ask, like... I'm sure that there are a lot of queer people who are fans of you now who have, this is some of their first exposure to martial arts and MMA. And I'm sure there are probably a lot of people that are looking at it and kind of considering it for themselves, considering, you know, is this a thing I want to get into? This looks like fun. I've never seen this before. And I was wondering if there's anything that, if you could say anything to like a trans or queer person who's thinking about getting into martial arts right now and feels that apprehension, um, what would you tell them?
2: Oh boy. Um, I mean, I feel like I might've used this statement in a different context before, but it, it still kind of holds true. I would say that it may not get easier. It really may not get easier, but you'll get stronger. Mm. And I mean, that's, that's about the best way I can put it. Um, You know, because let's be real right now, you know, mixed martial arts, even even traditional martial arts, it's, it's not the most welcoming space for queer people. It's really not a very welcoming space for women. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's, of course, like when you live in a culture whose primary exports are, itself and violence you know like you know um, america our exports are war and weapons and our own culture and our own culture is built around violence so when when you live in that culture um any martial arts space is dominated by that sort of mindset you know this whole like we're we're gonna be the big scary predatory animals you know we're lions we're wolves um and then you bring in someone who is used to being victimized, you know you you have demographics in there that you know, like maybe someone's been assaulted by a man, maybe someone's been sexually assaulted, and they're supposed to come into this space with all these men that are bigger and stronger and definitionally more skilled because they've been training and you haven't like yeah, it's really intimidating and it's scary, it is absolutely terrifying um so, yeah, like I said, it, it really, it may not get easier. It may never get easier. I mean, full disclosure, I still have PTSD meltdowns in the gym. It's a pretty regular thing for me, you know, especially in grappling. And, you know, I, I really want to work on my grappling game. I really want to improve my jujitsu. But, like, I get triggered. You know, somebody takes me down, gets me inside control and holds me there and I can't get up. Like it was a couple days before the fight, uh, I had someone get me down inside control and I couldn't get up and I started crying and I literally like, this was in sparring, And I was like, let me up, let me up. I have to get up right now. And I'm like sobbing because, you know, some, sometimes I'm, you know, somebody's holding me down on the ground and I can't get up and it throws me right back into that, you know, that South Carolina orange dirt, you know, and I'm six years old again and, and i can't escape you know so so like there's there's a lot of trauma wrapped up in that and uh so it, it can it can really be a terrifying experience for uh for someone that's that's had to endure anything like that so so yeah like i said when when it comes down to training martial arts or entering the combat sports space like i can't guarantee that it will get easier but you will get stronger one way or another
3: i like that a lot and if you do want it to be slightly easier. You should join Southpaw.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like my my, my emotional support sponsors.
1: <laughs> this is a question actually for both of you. And this is my final question. For people who don't understand or may have never considered it, how painful is it to deny who you are or even not have any people around you who can help you discover your identity? I think Karian even talked about that for her. If somebody had recognized that she was not living her truth, right? So a question for both of you. Um, Alana, do you wanna go first or do you want
3: me to go first? It's up to you.
2: You go ahead, go ahead. Okay, all
3: right, Um, yeah. So in my experience, um, the ways that I could try to put that feeling into words is uh, for a long time when I didn't know that I was trans, um, it wasn't even so much feeling like I was suicidal I just kind of felt like I was already dead. Like not being the person you really are isn't living at all. You can't live a life as someone else, no matter how hard you try. The only person you can be is you. So the longer you try to deny that and the longer you try to put that off and the longer you try to just conform, like to the society around you, just is more time that you spend just in a spot where you might as well be dead, and you know i I have a lot of time where like it gets kind of hard to realize that I spent like twenty of my twenty of my very limited years um not being the person that I should
2: have been, yeah. I mean, that, that's very much the way I feel about it. Um, you know, I, I would almost say that, like, for large portions of my life, I was just completely disassociated. Like, everything is fuzzy. Like, everything pre-transition just feels like, almost like it happened to someone else. Um, you know, and I, I've already spoken to, like, that sort of paranoia of, like, oh, what if somebody sees my hips moving too much? You know, what if someone knows that, like, I was, you know, that I slept in a nightgown, you know, like like stuff like that when you when you when you're living in so much fear of discovery and so much fear of acknowledgement of who you are, it just um it, it changes everything about your your experience of life. You cannot find joy. You know, um yeah, it, it's it's just absolutely abjectly miserable. Um and, and saying that it's like, you're already dead. Like, yeah, I mean, I feel like I did not truly start to live until I started transitioning. Um, and, and unfortunately, like due to social pressures and, and fear and anxiety, like transition wasn't like a a smooth path for me. You know, like I, I had a lot of false starts, you know, I tried to transition in high school. Um, I tried again in college. I tried, you know, like a couple times while I was in the army, like I was on and off of hormones as soon as I realized I could access them online, you know, and that, that kind of goes back into you know, people are like, oh, you know, you had 33, you had 33, 38 years as a man. Um, like, well, not really, you know, I don't know about you, but I didn't, I didn't go through puberty at birth. You know, I was... (laughs) I was actually kind of a late bloomer. I didn't start growing facial hair until, you know, I turned 21 and I was already in the army. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, the the thing is like, I knew who I was and I was trying so desperately not to be, and it nearly killed me. And, uh, you know, like really the, the, you know, like, transphobes like to trot out people that oh you know transition regret you know detransitioners whatever like most what they don't say is that most people that detransition do so because of how they are treated for being trans um and for me like death before detransition like straight out like i i would not be alive if i hadn't transitioned um i would never have truly lived if
1: i didn't transition and i'll be damned if i ever let anybody take that away from me It almost sounds like living like a ghost where you could walk around and watch the world, but you can't participate. It's almost like you don't exist, like you're slightly off, like you're in a different dimension where you're halfway here, but you're not really here where you could actually interact with your world. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I mean, growing up, I was basically told that that was just, uh, that was just depression. You know, that was just Mm -hmm. trauma response for the things that I went through. And I mean, to a large degree, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it very much was, you know, like my, my attitudes and my feelings were informed by a lot of the trauma that I experienced. But the biggest part of it, I do think was dysphoria. It was this idea that this, this feeling that just something was deeply, deeply wrong. And that I wasn't free to be myself. And like, you know, I knew from, from the various earliest age that it just was not okay for me to be who I was, you know? And, and when everyone that you love, everyone that is supposed to love you gives you the message that there is something deeply, like deeply, horribly wrong with you and it can never be forgiven, you know?
3: How, how do you live? On the topic of how you kind of compared it to like feeling like, you know, you're living in this separate almost dimension and like things can't reach you and like you can't quite interact with the world the way you want to. Um, before I had started transitioning, it was a thing that I would get asked a lot where I would have people directly ask me at times like around the holidays or for birthday parties where they would have to be like, are you happy? Because for most emotions, I, like, for everyone here that's familiar and a lot of our fans, um, you know, people talk a lot about the expressionless face of Fedor Emelianenko. Uh, that's that's what my happy face was. <laughs> that's, what, that's what my sad face was. Like, just dead eyes. Like, I'm not even looking at anyone. And just, I would have to, like, reassure people that, like, yeah, I'm happy. Like, yeah, I feel, and, like... I was, I was happy about the things that were going on, but it it's that thing of just constantly feeling like, but is it, is it happening to me? Is this birthday for me or is it for the person you think I am? Is this Christmas gift for me or is it for the son you think you have? Yeah.
2: Like that is, that is definitely a mood. Like even when, I mean, when my sisters were doing their damnedest to try to be supportive, um, like, I mean, they still go to church five times a week. They're still involved in that, that cult, you know? Yeah. Um. But it really, really hurt to be told that, oh, well, I have to mourn my brother. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, your brother was never real. And I'm here. I'm, I didn't die. Like I'm finally alive, but you care more for this this empty suit of armor, you know, this facade that never was, then you do the real person standing in front of you, you know, and yeah, it's just, it's painful all around.
1: It almost sounds like a permanent out of body experience where you're always out of your body. I mean, that's what it sounded like. What Karian was describing Mm -hmm. until you started transitioning And what transitioning means is different things for different people. It doesn't necessarily always have to do with hormones or surgery or anything. It's about like Mm -hmm. transitioning to your truth. Right. Yeah. But in doing that it sounded mm-hmm. like you were putting yourself back into your body i guess that's mm-hmm. why people talk about reclaiming your body because you're out of your body for so right. long mm-hmm. you're like here i i'm coming back like this ghost like pulling themselves back into their body yeah you know like in the cartoons like the ghost is leaving the body <laughs> and it's about to die but then the ghost is like no 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 i don't want to die and then yeah. they pull themselves back into the body and now they're alive yeah. i mean that sounds like a comical way to explain it but it might be for some people who've never gone through that the only like kind of analogy that they might have is this out of body experience where transitioning and living your truth is putting yourself back into your body and living.
3: Mm -hmm. And I think like something that a lot of jujitsu chads and Joe Rogan in particular would hate to hear is that uh, my first steps I feel for my transition and feeling like I'd ever been in my body was training jujitsu. Um, doing something physical like that and doing something that took me out of that just constant mental fog and like disconnection from my body and forced me to inhabit it also forced me to realize that i had been living this way where i'd been disconnected from everything and i'd been you know putting up this facade of someone else because that's who i thought i was because that's who everyone said i was
2: yeah i mean that was That, that was kind of how I felt with doing anything athletic, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, with, with getting tattoos, with jumping out of airplanes, like all, all, all of these things that I did to sort of, to feel real, to feel in my body, to, to reclaim it in some way.
1: To feel real. Yeah.
2: Yeah. To feel real. I mean, Christ, I, this is going to sound like sappy and weird, but like as a kid, I didn't understand why the story, the velveteen rabbit hit me so fucking hard, but, but it did, you know, like you've, you've got this little stuffed animal who was, you know, trying to become real, uh, you know, and it was love that made it real. Right. And, and like, I had almost forgotten about that story and then I heard it again and I had just like broke down sobbing, you know, and it's, you know, for, for me, everything that I've ever done that, involved any kind of like sort of extreme situation, like anything to, to really deeply feel anything, whether it was combat or martial arts or dance or screaming or, or like anything like that. It was just, it was this, this all out effort to try to, to be real, to inhabit my body, to not be in that fog in that fugue state. Um,
1: immediacy. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. It is that immediacy. You know, it's, it's why I lifted weights. It's why I ran long distance. You know, it was just, I needed to feel, uh, you know, I think it's what drives a lot of people to self harm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just, just that need to feel something.
1: So that's in a way, acting out that feeling that if you hurt yourself, then you feel at least that you're alive or you're here. It's a reminder, right? Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like when I'm getting punched in the face, like, oh, it's like, oh, wow. Wake up. You're right here. You know, <laughs> like it I'm getting a tattoo and I feel that needle driving into my flesh. It's like, oh, this is real. This is where I am right now. Here I am. And that's the thing. Like, I can't speak for other trans people. I can't speak for other people struggling with depression or mental illness or anything like that. But for me, like, that is what I had to have. I had to have something to bring me back into my body. I had to have something to, to feel real again, you know, and for whatever reason, you know, like that, that has shaped, uh, my life experiences that, that has shaped who I am as a person. So that, that's why I'm going to keep fighting until I can't anymore. And after that, I'm going to, be running ultra marathons. That's why I'm going to go <laughs> uh, after this interview done. I'm going to stuff myself with, with donuts and coffee. You know, like I, I want to feel, you know, I, I want to be here now as long as I can,
1: you know, this was an amazing talk. Thank you for your time, Alana. Thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find you?
2: Uh, in all the usual places, you know, I've got, I've got a, an athlete page up on Facebook, but they basically hide the thing unless you pay for advertising. So that doesn't really uh, get, much, <laughs> get much traction. Uh, I'm on Instagram as lady underscore Farrell, I think. Um, and I've got Twitter. I don't remember exactly what my Twitter thing is. Uh, but I mean, at this point, if you, if you Google search Lady Farrell or
3: Alana McLaughlin, you'll find me.
1: I'll put all the links in the show notes so people <laughs> can just directly find it. Karian, where can people find you?
3: Yeah, you can find me um, on Instagram and Twitter at powertool, P-W-R-T-O-O-L-E. And then uh, if you like Pride Never Die, you like some of the stuff I do for Southpaw, and you want to financially contribute to uh, my stability and ability to uh, provide that content, um, my Venmo is Paul Hollyweed, because (laughs) I love to make fun of Paul Hollywood from Great British Bake Off. All right. Thank you both so much for everything, honestly.
2: Like, seriously, all the emotional support leading up to this fight. Like, I definitely
1: needed it. You're welcome, and thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Make sure you check out all the other shows on the Southpaw Network, like Karian's show, Pride Never Die, Southpaw Fight Study, and some of the other shows we have coming up. And make sure you support us on Patreon. That's
2: a wrap.